Dear listeners, before we start this week's episode, uh, we wanted to let you know that we are going to be performing our first ever live podcast recording in London on the 5th of April at the Conway Hall. And if you're around, we would love you to come and join us and take part. Our topic actually is going to be stepping into freedom. And we're also going to be doing a live question and answer session. Um, If you would like to buy tickets, you can find them on plumvillage.org forward slash out is in live. We'll obviously put the uh, link onto uh, the show notes. We would love it if you came and supported us. Uh, we are normally, as you know, recording in Tignatan's very intimate sitting still hut, um, where we may have one or two guests, and now we're going to have up to 400. So come and smile at us and support us, and we will smile back. Hope to see you there. Dear friends, welcome to this latest episode of the podcast series, The Way Out is In. I'm Joe Confino, working at the intersection of personal transformation and systems evolution. And I am Brother Fab Hu, a Zen Buddhist monk, student of Zen Master Tikihan in the Plum Village tradition. And Brother, we are not sitting round in a cosy kitchen of Tiknatan's sitting still hut in Upper Hamlet. We've come out into the world, and today we are sitting in front of the Plum Village community in the main meditation hall. And I'm uh, feeling different from normal. Brother, how are you feeling sitting, sitting in front of the Sangha doing this recording? With all the smiles we are uh, being offered, I feel okay. Oh, good. Well, you're more mindful and more a deeper practitioner than me because I can feel my heart beating. So I, I think I'm going to just look at you and totally ignore the fact that there are many people sitting here. <laughs> Likewise. So, um, brother, today we are going to talk about um, a Buddhist concept called ripening. Um, which is sort of the understanding that um, things don't have to happen immediately, that the care, love, attention, commitment we put into what's important in life take time to ripen, and we shouldn't be expecting instant noodles, instant results. Dear listeners, I am Joe Confino. And I am Brother Fab Hu. So, Brother Fab Hu, how are you feeling today? Today, I am feeling very honored to have uh, the Upper Hamlet community sitting in the Stillwater Hall in Plum Village for our first ever recording of a podcast with a community surrounding us. Normally, we are just the four or five of us in Tai's uh, little hut and little kitchen recording these podcasts, but today we have a whole community that is with us uh, during our holiday retreat to be a part of the podcast. Yay, welcome everyone. Um, so, brother, we're talking about ripening. Now, um, ripening is the fourth Dharma seal of Plum Village. So I think before we go into it in detail, it'd be really good just to actually explain what the Dharma, what Dharma seal actually means. Why did Tai create this notion of Dharma seals? And also let's race through the first three because of course, 
we know that each one is a lifetime of practice, but just let's just introduce the three so that we can then really deepen our understanding of the fourth. Thank you, Joe. So in Buddhism, in order to uh, record all of the teachings of the Buddhas and many Zen masters and teachers, spiritual teachers throughout history, Buddhism has also become, in a way, an institution of uh, insights and teaching. So in Buddhism, we like a lot of lists. We have a lot of uh, categories in order to put teachings into baskets so that we can articulate uh, the insights into our daily life. And historically, we have some very profound seals or we call them Dhamma doors, Dhamma doors that already exist, such as the three Dhamma seals from the Buddha's time, the three doors of liberations. And because Plum Village itself is a living tradition and our teacher is... Uh, somebody who is very innovative and always coming up with new ways of teaching the Dhamma. And the Dhamma has to be a living Dhamma, so it has to be very appropriate for our times. So as Plum Village started to become a tradition and our teacher's teaching also started to ripen, started to mature, and as well as easily addressing our times, the suffering of our times. So he came up with four Dhamma seals of the Plum Village tradition, and he speaks of it as our, our pathway for those of us who wants to be a part of this tradition so that we can use as a guide, as a compass, when we are learning other Dhammas. Because in Buddhism, there are so many different teachings and so many different traditions and each and every one of us we are going to find the tradition that fits us and here is not to judge like which tradition is better which dharma is better but it's kind of like food or tea you have to find your cup of tea you have to find the nutrients that fit your body that keeps your well-being present so the first Dhamma seal is, I have arrived, I am home. I have arrived, I am home. It's a lifetime practice like you shared, because in our times, we are always seeking gratification or the feeling of um, success or the feeling of wholeness. And it's pointed towards the future most of the time or something outside of us for us to run after, to grasp. If we look back at our own education in, since elementary to middle school and, and high school and college, we're always seeking a diploma, we're seeking a position, and it, it can be advertised as a destination of happiness. But in the practice of meditation and mindfulness, when we practice to come home to the very here and now, we can start to discover that the present moment is the only moment that we can be alive. And the present moment, it embraces the past as well as it is creating the future. So I have arrived, I am home 
is an insight. It is the destination that I am practicing every day, every moment, in order to arrive to. And it is not just uh, intellectual knowledge, but it is it's something that I can feel within my breath, within my body, within this moment, being with everyone here. Am I truly here, or am I having fear come up, um, afraid of people's perceptions and judgment of what I'm saying? And in the present moment, I can also embrace all of these thoughts that are manifesting. So the present moment becomes a holder so that we can recognize, embrace, transform, and move forward. I have arrived, I am home. Our second Dharma seal is go as a river. Going as a river is the practice of the monks, the nuns, and all of the practitioners who would like to become a core member of this Sangha. And this insight comes from our teachers deep looking at the 20th century as well as our century now and seeing that uh, society, we are so individualistically based. We think only about ourselves. Um, and in Buddhism, the deepest teaching is non-self. To arrive at the insight of non-self, of interbeing, of interconnectedness. But for us to arrive and to feel that insight, we also have to physically feel as part of a community, as part of a oneness. So going as a river, there's so many layers to it. And I'll try to just uh, explain them in, in my time as a monk in Plum Village. So we all come in with our pride, our suffering, our happiness, our egos, our aspiration, our greatest dreams. And how can we have a deep view so that we can look at our own well-being and see it as the well-being of all the others also? And that takes training. So in Plum Village, very practically, all of us, we share rooms. We have roommates. So already we're practicing going as a river in our rooms. So in the monk's quarter, we all have our separate space, but we have a common tea area, and we should practice in harmony in that tea area. Whatever arrives on that table is for everyone. So if, if you have a deep love towards chocolate, and, and you know that uh, that chocolate is very special to you, and you want to practice to share, to be in harmony, and to allow others to also enjoy what you enjoy, your practice is to put that chocolate bar on the table. Oh, forget that, brother. That ain't me. <laughs> and I'd hide it under my bed and wait till everyone was asleep and then eat the whole lot. <laughs> exactly. And the miracle of our resident, no doors are locked. So anybody can come in any time. And if I'm hungry, like literally, if I'm hungry and I see like a chocolate bar there, and it's on the common space, it's almost like an unspoken rule in the monk's resident, it's yours, you can have it. And, and you come back and you may be, you know, coming from service meditation, and like, 
that treat that you wanted to treat yourself and you arrive into the resident and you see that that chocolate is not there anymore and you get very upset, but your practice is, ah, but somebody else enjoyed the chocolate. I have a lot to learn. So our, <laughs> all of us are a drop of water in this river and the deeper, more profound, the more profound um, looking into the river is the river is constantly flowing. And all rivers, the destination of the river is the ocean. And we can say that the ocean is enlightenment or love, compassion, or the greatest aspiration. And we may feel very alone if we walk by ourselves and we take the path by ourselves. And the river will meet many challenges. It will maybe meet a very narrow creek and maybe a blockage and the river may stop. But if we see that we're not practicing alone, whether physically with a community or spiritually knowing that you are a continuation of a whole lineage, that there are those who have been there before you and that have walked this path, you can be empowered by the ancestors the genetic ancestors, as well as the spiritual ancestors. And these riv this river, these energies can help you have breakthrough, to push through the challenges. So going as a river is also the insight so that we can remove the self in order to be more collective. And it speaks to our, our view of the next Buddha, so Tai has uh, spoken publicly that uh, Tai doesn't think that the next Buddha is just one person. And a lot of us, we may think of like a savior or um, a hero coming along that will change the whole situation of the poly crisis that we go through and so on. But Tai's insight is in our times, one Buddha is not enough anymore. And we need a collective awakening. So each and every one of us, whether we are monastics or we are long-term practitioner as a lay member with families, couples, business leaders, teachers, educators, doctors, every one of us as part of this stream of life have a part to play to this collective awakening. So it also offers a responsibility to each of us if we see that we are a drop of water in this river. So to, to reflect back, how are we contributing to this river, to this collective river? And brother, so I think Ty said the first two are the foundation for the next two. So if we're, if we're in the present moment as in community, then they flow into the next two, is that right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> one tick for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, the first two is, especially the first one is to really to, to have that agency of that, we all have the capacity to arrive, to be here. And this is a lifetime practice. And to go as a river is also the practice of letting go. And the way that the community has been um, curated by Thai, especially for the monks and nuns, um, because at one point we all become teachers. We all become a particular Dharma teacher or leaders. 
we may be very prideful of our own success as a monk, but the way that we have orchestrated our way of living is to always feel like we're flowing as a river. So even after I give a Dhamma talk or I do a podcast, I'm still lining up like everybody else, getting our own food. We are still gonna walk in meditation together and not in like a, a single file line, but the spirit of the way of life, it also embraces this insight. So now we're gonna go into a more, the, the third and the fourth, it's gonna go a little bit deeper into um, the teachings of, the, of our spiritual teachers from the Buddha to the many ancestors. So the third one is the truth and times into R. So when we say the truth, it is the Four Noble Truth of Buddhism. The Four Noble Truth is uh, the foundation of, of all teachings of the Buddha. So in deep Buddhism, we, we don't venture into superpowers and some supernatural state of being. And this is Brother Fabu's take only, uh, I feel, and because Tai have shared this many times that because Buddhism has um, gone through many centuries and many teachings and adapted to many cultures and many beliefs and many tradition and Mahayana Buddhism is to, um, is to be open and flexible in its way of teaching so that it can enter into the hearts of people. And some of the teachings itself has been, has been curated in a way to, to look more and to feel more superhuman in the practice of Buddhism. And if you ever ask Thay what happens when you die about reincarnation, for example, Thay always stays away from those questions. He always asks back, the real question is, what is happening while we are alive? That's more important than the beyond. But in this Dharma, when the three times into R, it also speaks on how do we care for the past and the future in the present moment. And these two, they can be a great support for each other. So the first, let's talk about just the truths. We, we enter into a spiritual path in order to arrive at happiness, arrive at enlightenment or liberation, we can say. And therefore, we may have a view that uh, suffering or difficulty is something we need to get rid of. And that is our very dualistic view of right, left, up, down, black, white, good, evil. And in the deep teaching of right view, right view transcends all of that. It, it breaks free from right and left. Because if we remove the right, then the left cannot be there. If we don't have darkness, the light won't have a chance to appear. So the truths of suffering and happiness, they interrelate and they 
take care of each other. They are two they are two opposites that rely on each other to exist. So we have to liberate our our minds or this view from good and bad. So that is the the domicile of the the truth is to see the interconnected relation between happiness and suffering, success and failure, inferiority complex and superiority complex, even equality complex. And equality here is not inclusiveness of the four immeasurable minds. But even when we are trying to be equal, we are still judging and fighting. Because I want to be like you, Joe. I know that. So, so I need to... <laughs> So I need to get rid of something else to fight to become like you. So there is still a grasping. And here, this truth is to see the, that all conditions are important, and to have the insight of mindfulness to shine the light to what truth we are holding onto, and are the truth become our own blockage. Our own suffering. Thai says Thai means teacher in Vietnamese, and whenever I speak about Thai, it refers to Zen Master Thich Nhat Han. Thai, from time to time, would ask the community to reflect and look at our notion of what our happiness is, and are we still holding onto a concept of happiness that belonged to? The twenty-year-old Fabhu, and now I've grown and hopefully matured more. And have I allowed my happiness to grow? Have my happiness also matured? And then the suffering that I've experienced, am I still holding on to that, or have I already moved on? But I'm still attached to that identity. So this. This seal is for us to reflect and look at our present times, which will now thread us into the three times. Whenever we speak about the now in Buddhism or in mindfulness, there's a lot of books on the power of now, which is a wonderful book, and there's many um, teachings on mindfulness. But it uh, sometimes it may be perceived as though we're not allowed to think about the future, or we're not allowed to reflect on the past, and only the now is important. So there's a truth to the now is important, but the now cannot be if there is no past, right? And the now is becoming the future. So this dharma seal is for us. To have more agency, so that we can have the right to live the way we need to live, to take care of the past, we can learn so much from our past. We can review the past in order to have insight in our habits of today, in the way that we are thinking, the way that we are being. There's a deep interrelated connection to the past, and we can take it even further into the past of our parents, into the past of our ancestors, into the past of a society that we are in. We can see the 
transmission of consciousness, of speech, of action, of belief, of culture that has been transmitted to us. And then in the here and now, we are also creating a new past. And this, um, this insight really liberated me. One day, I don't remember exactly when it was, maybe it was from Tai's teaching, but uh, it, it became like a light bulb in me. And because sometimes I would procrastinate and I would wish if only I can go back in time and change the way it was. And I'm sure a lot of us have wished this, like I wish I had that superpower to go back to the past, to change the past. And currently right now, like there's a lot of movies and dramas and series about different times and people going back to the past. So there's something in the collective consciousness about this also. I realized that it is impossible to go physically back to the past, but I can bring the past into the here and now and to hew it by my way of being right here, right now. As well as by this present moment, I am creating a new past. I can reflect on later this podcast in this hall with everyone here as a moment of happiness for me. So we are being given like a new paintbrush, a new key. How are we creating our history in this very moment? And in the future, the future that we like to see, the future that we like to cultivate, our practice is an investment for the future. And our way of being has a deep impact on what we would like to realize. The Buddha has shared that uh, the world is created by our mind. I'll let that sink in and all of us can, can, can think about that. But in Buddhism, we also have to know that the insight and the actions have to go hand in hand. Mind and actions have to be one for, in order to create a path. So we may have very deep aspiration towards the future. And I have arrived, I'm home grounds us and asks all of us, how are we living this moment of the three times in order to care for the future we would like to create? The interbeing nature of the truth and the three times. That's the third Dhamma seal. which flows naturally into the ripening, because you've already, in a sense, that's already coming into this conversation. Exactly. And the fourth Dhamma seal is the ripening. Mm. 
And I like the word ripening more. Before, I think we had different languages for it. For it, but ripening is um, it shows us, and it's the insight that uh, there's no quick fixes in changing um, our life. Right now, mindfulness is very popular. Um, one of my childhood friends, uh, she told me, "Oh, mindfulness is so sexy right now." <laughs> <laughs> And I asked her, "What do you mean?" She's like, "Dude, I need to write that in my like. Um, I need to write that as part of my um, when I look for a job. What was that thing called? Your CV. My CV. Like, if I can write, like, I've been trained as a mindfulness communicator, or it adds a layer to it. To maybe that could be the fifth uh, Dharma seal. Sort of <laughs> mindfulness is sexy. <laughs> <laughs> And, and it, it's, it's being packaged very well. Capitalism has arrived in the world of spirituality, and uh, it packages the teachings of, of, um, of mindfulness, but it packages in a way of a promise. Do this to feel that. Practice this, and you will be like that. And it's... It's a it's a wonderful bait. Who doesn't want to feel better? Who doesn't want to be more relaxed? Who doesn't want to have more capacity of uh, of of establishing our presence? And our teacher Tai is he's a very wonderful teacher. He never is biased. And one time in an interview. In, in, in the Netherlands, and this was already in 2011, and one of the journalists asked Tai Tai, are you afraid that, um, that mindfulness is becoming a business? And Tai always says, there's always popular Buddhism, and then there's deep Buddhism. And for some popular Buddhism, maybe back in the days in Southeast Asia, it is more about devotion, it is more like based around ceremonies and um, like blessings. And it all plays a part. Maybe the, the popular Buddhism can be a pathway into deeper Buddhism. And as I reflect in 2023, slowly 2024, I think our popular Buddhism is more like an app. Even the Plum Village app is like, a popular Buddhism, it can be spread, but the deeper Buddhism is to see the deeper journey of ripening of our, of our own investment in our caring for ourself. And ripening here is also, it gives us, it gives us an opportunity to relax a bit. A lot of us are here just for one week in Plum Village, and I know uh, we, have, we may have a lot of expectation for ourselves in one week. We've planned for this trip for a very long time, finally arrived in Plum Village, and I want to leave Plum Village in a particular way. We may leave in a very different state from day one, but all of our suffering may not have ended, and we may feel that it doesn't work that we failed. So the insight of ripening 
is to allow us to understand that the path of practice is a wonderful journey, and it takes time and space for things to mature, for things to transform, for things to heal. And of course, when we hear about ripening, we may think of a tree, let's say, an orange tree. It takes time for the seed to be planted, for the roots to deepen, for the tree to grow, for the leaves, the flower, and even when the fruit is there, it takes time for the fruit to be ripened. And so our practice can be seen and can be viewed as a journey of ripening. So when we first start meditating, we're still very agitated. We can be much more um, agitated. Maybe we we don't enjoy the meditation yet. And I sure didn't enjoy sitting meditation for the first four years. It was one of my worst, like like of all the lists, like sitting meditation was horrible because I didn't enjoy sitting in stillness. I was very um, agitated. I felt. Uh, I felt like I wanted to be quote unquote more productive, whatever that meant. And sitting still wasn't doing that for me. But my understanding and my growth in the sitting matured. It ripened, and it really became the one place where I can be able to just look deeply at my present moment. To not even think. Just to feel what is in the here and now. And um, brothers, um, this is a lifetime journey, and in fact, it's not in a lifetime journey; it's a lifetime's journey because actually, we hand the baton over to the next generation as the previous generations have handed it to us. And and I loved what you said about it allows us to relax because so much of today is. We do something, and we expect to see a particular result, and we don't understand the complexity of life and the fact that actually, what we do now, we may never see the result of. And that um, I, I like it because I think it says it's, it's ripening in every moment. And what I like about that is that it's, as my understanding is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like every thought we have. Every word we utter, every action, actually goes out into the world and into eternity. It's like um, we have this idea that we do something, the next day it's gone, and we need to do something else. And then we need to do something else, and I think that is what leads partly to our busyness. That we constantly think we need to do something because the other thing has finished. Whereas actually, each thing we say, each thing we think, each thing we do, actually ripples out. And I love that. Image of a of a pond or a big lake where you throw in a stone, and you see the ripples go out in every direction. And even when you can't really see them, they're still there in a sort of subtle way, stretching out further and further. So I love that sense. I and I think that's what's helped me most in my life, is to relax. And saying if my intention is clear, and I think intention is about in the present moment, what is it really in my heart and in my mind. What is it? How am I part of a community? So, what is the intent behind it? Not only for myself, but for others. That when you're taking that foundational 
stance, then everything you do, you can allow it to ripple out because you know it sort of has your love and attention in. And, um, and I know in the last interview I did with Ty, he said, even if I were to live for a hundred years more, I would still learn. I would still, the learning journey is endless. And he said, actually, he said I could take just the first Dharma seal I've arrived at home and I could spend my entire life just focusing on that. So I'd be really interested in understanding your process of ripening. So you talked about the sort of, um, the sort of meditation, but actually we're ripening wisdom and, and whether you see it as a life journey and whether actually, how do you allow that to exist, but also this sense of in Buddhism diligence that you also have to focus and be attentive. That sense, how, how, do, you, how do you work all with, with all that? Just as you shared that uh, every action in the present moment is, is a seed that we're planting for the future, but, not but, and, and looking, I'm also a ripening of my parents' past, of my spiritual ancestors' past. And this has been very healing for me, so I am... I'm a child of uh, parents who are refugees from the Vietnam War. And I grew up in Toronto in Canada, and I never really identified myself as a Vietnamese person. And I always had a complex of like, who am I? Like, what am I? And us Asians who grew up in, in the West, we, we, we have a complex called the banana complex, where we're yellow outside, but Internally, we want to be white because that was the, the society that we were living in and also receiving some racism and, you know, seeing that the success is a white person. And that was my journey. Like, I really had, like, a deep um, hole of, like, when will I ever be enough? And coming to Plum Village for retreats during the summer was like the first time when I really felt that it's more than skin color and more than like cultures. And, but it's, it's like feet touching that, that mind of love that was so present in Plum Village. And I, I came for the first time when I was nine years old in Plum Village. And it was the first time where I really felt I didn't have to really guard myself. And that was a beginning journey of arriving, arriving in, in my own skin. And as a Vietnamese, I didn't have a lot of role models who were Vietnamese, who I can view as a superhero and I, uh, I grew up with Marvel Comics and, you know, Spider-Man, X-Men, and, and thinking to be something like that. Or I wanted to be a hockey player because I grew up in Canada. You know, I watched a lot of <laughs> NHL, the Toronto Maple Leafs. That's a was, good way of fitting in. And I, I just wanted to be a hockey player but because that was what I, I felt as empowering, like th that fame. And suddenly, you know, I was able to see a simple monk who's gone through so much, 
established plum village, who walks in freedom, who is so kind, who is so compassionate and so gentle. Thai was so gentle. And I grew up also in a family where we had a lot of suffering due to due to the journey as a refugee and being in a new country and all of the um, the unknown, the fear. So there was a lot of alcoholism. There was a lot of um, anger and and violence. And uh, the image of somebody who is so kind was was uh, was so special. And the kindness wasn't didn't come with anything in return. Like I, I'm, I'm not being kind to you because I want something in return. But that kindness was, was boundless. As I started to enter into this community and become a monk, I still identify myself as a Canadian. For a very long time, I still never identify myself as a Vietnamese, and. For the monastics on Thursdays, we used to divide the monks and nuns um, in language group, and I always pick English. And I I never felt like I want to be part of the Vietnamese crew. But our Dharma and Thai's teachings is also about returning to our roots, healing our roots, accepting our roots. So that was uh, a journey I knew I had to take, but I didn't. Um, I wasn't ready in the first few years, and because I also had, I also had a, a perception like my parents left Vietnam, and then Thai was exiled from Vietnam. So to be honest, like there was even a little bit of an anger, like like a little bit of a, yeah, like. I, that's not my country. That's not my. That's not where I'm from. But the ripening and the seamlessly healing that is happening while being in a community like here, getting to see the beautiful nature of my Vietnamese brothers and sisters, their community. Vietnam is a very community-based country, and their hospitality level is is very selfless. I was uh, always welcomed, always embraced, uh, as well as the language itself, the Vietnamese language, the melody. At one point, it was music to my ears, and I my Vietnamese deepened, and the understanding of the of the actions in the non-actions. In the Vietnamese culture, I started to see it. Like in Vietnam, we don't say "I love you." That's not part of our language. That was introduced by the colonization <laughs> of of, uh, of the West coming to Vietnam. We learned to say "I love you." I think that can be a fruit, maybe. But our our expression of love is through action. Is through the like if you're sick. You don't need to ask me. I'll just make you hot soup. You know, if you're sick, you need to ask me. I'll just get you a hot water bottle. It it should be seamless in the care. Because if I love you, it's unconditional. It shouldn't be based on demand. 
It should be based on awareness. And I started to identify the wonderful qualities in my own heritage and in the depths of it. And so there was a healing that was starting to happen without me even knowing. It's very difficult not to, not to involve ourselves in the Vietnamese community in Plum Village because Thai is originally Vietnamese <laughs> and our heritage, our tradition, the Plum Village tradition also take roots in Vietnamese Zen. So no matter how much I want to push it away, I can't escape from that. So there's also like a ripening that happened in me, which was like, I just surrendered. I just opened my heart to whatever that is here. And when I was going through a crisis in, in my own path of practice, and I didn't know if I wanted to be a monk or not anymore. And yeah, I was deep in a dark hole because I was so individualistic and my superiority complex was so strong that I didn't want my community to see me weak. And it was the constant love from my brothers and sisters of just showing up without any, um, any pressure. The pressure was only in my mind. They would invite me for a conversation. They would just say, I'm here for you. I just want you to know that. Or just do very gentle gesture. And when I finally like, just opened my heart and allowed the love and the support to come, things started to change. So I, I did that with also Vietnam. Um, this year, 2023, um, causes and conditions, I was in Vietnam. And I was able to visit uh, my parents' um, homeland uh, in a, a little city called Gò Cong. And I went to the bay where my father left as a boat person. And I've been there in 2000 when I was very young. And my dad took me on a boat in 2000 to allow me to experience the journey of a boat person. But now in 2023, when I stood at that bay and I just allow myself to be my father in that moment and also to feel all of the pain and the suffering of Vietnam, and also to touch all of the hope, all of the, the aspiration and all the beauty of Vietnam in that moment. I felt, uh, I felt myself as, as a Vietnamese for the first time. And I stood there and I offered so much gratitude to, first of, first of all, to my father for his courage, his bravery into entering into the ocean of the unknown. But I also had so much love and so much appreciation for, for, for the changes of Vietnam today, the, the beauty of Vietnam today, and the healing that has been in process without me even seeing. 
and Thai's trip back to Vietnam in 2005, 2007, and 2008 has also played a big role in the spiritual healing of Buddhism in Vietnam. And in that moment, I was just able to just embrace past, present, and then think about the future, think about the hope of, of myself as a Vietnamese in that moment. So that was a ripening that took 22 years to arrive um, and, and to have like that, that freedom. And now, yes, I can say like, I am, I am, I am Vietnamese. I can also say I'm Plum Village. I can also say I'm Canadian. And it's just that freedom, that inner freedom to accept. brother for sharing so deeply and and what what I hear in that is the difference between control and trust because so much of our lives we are trying to control that we have as you said a certain goal in mind we want to have achieved something by a certain time if we invest our love in something we want to see the result of it and so in a sense our whole mind is fixated on the outcome rather than of the journey and, um, and you speak so beautifully about the fact that actually it's when we let go and are just in the process of life that things show up and that we trust in life to show itself. And brother, I'd like to, in a sense, also share um, a story of ripening, which is um, my mother's uh, life. So um, my mother um, was born in Germany and... Um, and uh, you know was caught up in the Holocaust and um, and was put on a train at the age of fourteen um, on her own out of Germany after Kristallnacht after um, her family flat uh, was sort of wrecked by the Nazis who came and destroyed it and um, and she went to England on her own and um, her grandparents died in the concentration camps and her brother um, who was hiding in France, was betrayed to the Nazis and also died in the concentration camps. So she was uh, very traumatized. And um, after the war finished, my when she married my father, they decided to go and visit Germany. And um, when she got to the border on the train, she couldn't go across the border. She got off the train and literally just froze and told my father, you know, I, I can't go just can't cross the border, it's too painful. Um, and he coaxed her across. And, um, and she took this journey of forgiveness over the years, and she got back in touch with, the, with, her, uh, with her friends from school who had um, rejected her and pushed her away. And, and she, all the isolation, she got in touch with them and went back to Germany and met them 
and then went back to her old school where she was forced out of and talked to the students. And what I know in terms of the ripening of her story that over the years she found forgiveness and by her finding forgiveness it allowed me and her other children and the people around her to feel that forgiveness and the people then she she went the old students her old school friends who had actually felt all this terrible guilt all their life she freed them from their guilt and their pain so there was something around the fact that when we take a journey then the ripening isn't for us to determine but if we take the journey in a good spirit then so many things can happen um, and also the sense it's generational because the one thing uh, she couldn't forgive was that um, uh, one distant relative who was actually in the German army after the war to escape from uh, the Allies he took on the uh, identity of my mother's brother, of my uncle, uh, in order to flee to South America. And she got word from the Red Cross that her brother was still alive because they had notice of, of the fact that this person had traveled. And, um, and so she had this moment where she thought her brother was still alive, and then it was dashed when she found out that this person had taken on his identity to flee. And... Um, when she was old and not very well and in a hospital, sort of I was talking about her life of forgiveness and I said, you know, is there anything left to be done? She said, the one place I haven't been able to forgive is this person. And that's the limit of my journey. And I remember as I said to her at the time, Mum, I'll, I'll take on that part of your journey. You know, I, I will take on that journey of forgiveness for that person. Because that is passing on the banner of the baton. That's the generational aspect that whatever is not healed in the past, we can heal in the, in the present. And then we pass it on. And then the next people can take on that sort of healing journey. So that sort of sense of ripening, it needs us to stand back from it. Mm. And these are four Dhamma seals are instruction by our teacher for all of us who are monks and nuns and Dharma teachers of our tradition, when we teach the Dharma, it has to have these Dharma seals. It has to have the aspect of arriving in the present moment, having the ability to care for the present, and then to teach in a way that brings in the collective, the collective of the individual's journey is the collective journey. The collective journey is the individual's journey to, to free ourselves from, uh, from the self. And this is rooted in the teaching of uh, non-self in Buddhism. And then the third is to talk about suffering and happiness as friends, as interbeing as support for one another and how do we take care of our happiness so that uh, it can transform the suffering but when the happiness becomes the suffering to not be afraid because we've already experienced the joy and the happiness and then 
the three times of understanding of which becomes the ripening is that everything we are investing today, nothing is lost. And we always uh, uh, say this in Plum Village, and I and because I really believe it. You know, like when a monastic leaves the the path, like in the past, it was really frowned. Upon it looked down. It's like that's a failure, you know. Either that person has failed, or the community has failed. But actually, nothing is lost. And I remember when we started the five-year program in Plum Village. Um, it means that there will be monastics leaving the community, and Tai said, "That's great because they've been trained for five years. They've they've been living in a community where." Hopefully, they've been able to touch love. They can have healed and transformed some of their suffering. So when they leave the world, oh, sorry, when they leave Plum Village, <laughs> enter into well, the world. Well, that is leaving the real world. <laughs> it's going back into the weird world. When they go back into the weird world, the real world, <laughs> they can carry these elements and, and be an ambassador of mindfulness. So nothing is really lost. And... This, especially in Upper Hamlet, when a brother leaves the community, we we learn to celebrate his his time with us, and we offer gratitude, and we we wish him a wonderful journey outside, because there is pain. It's kind of like I remember one time one of our elders shared, um, like after Tai's stroke, like a lot of monastics also left the community. And you know when we live together, it's like we're trees of this forest, and at one point in our journey, our roots touch each other, like each other's roots. So there's a relationship, there's a connection. But when one tree leaves the the um, the forest, it hurts. You know that the root is ripped, and and there's still some pain there. But nevertheless, we we learn to see that. Their time with us is still there, and when they leave, there's a part of us that goes with that person. So, like nothing is lost. So the ripening, it also shows us the deep connection of everything. Like we shared, there's some things that we are able to do now. We may not see the impact of it. Maybe 100 years later, that wisdom becomes the path. Just like the Buddha, I'm not sure if the Buddha would know that his teaching would continue beyond 2,600 years. And our teacher always jokes around like Buddhism is one of the longest-lasting enterprise is continued. <laughs> and, and one of us we joke around because suffering is our business. So wherever there's suffering, <laughs> Buddhism still still exists because it's a truth. It's a truth that. Nobody can take away as being uh, part of human beings. We're always going to suffer, but how do we suffer? That is the art. There's a very strong calligraphy by Tai. He says, "Suffering is optional." It means we all will have to go through the ups and downs, birth and death, old age, sickness. It is suffering. But it's optional if you dig into it and you allow yourself to shoot two arrows, three arrows, four arrows. But if you know how to suffer, you suffer less. 
And this also can empower us, this ripening can empower us in our daily actions. We have an opportunity to always offer kindness, to always offer um, well-being in our daily presence. We may not know the impact of it, but for some to receive a gratitude from us can be an energy boost for them for months or years to come. I'll never forget uh, one time. Okay, this is, I, I don't think I've shared this on the podcast. Um, how much to unveil? All, all, <laughs> all of it. <laughs> this is the, you see, you're bringing out the journalist in me now. <laughs> okay, but it's, it's very cheeky though. That's why like, I, I feel like it's sometimes even maybe cringy. But uh, one time, like, uh, I was preparing for Tai to come to Upper Hamlet. And uh, as an attendant, there's a lot of checklists we need to do, prepare for his hut, the podium, his speech he's gonna offer, know his agenda and so on, his schedule. And then I asked Tai, Tai, do you need anything else? And we were on the phone. A, a very rare moment, Tai was on the phone. <laughs> Because usually Sister Chang Kaum, Sister True Emptiness, is Thai's secretary, so she would answer on his behalf. And I just heard Thai say, I just need you. It's so yeah. cheeky. <laughs> That's lovely, though. But for me, those words, yeah. I just need you, it's, I've been carrying with it, like, it's, it's been, it's been a bomb, like, a, a soothing balm whenever I feel like less than or I feel, you know, just small and little and not seen. I, and I just, I just remember those words. I just need you. At least there's one person that needs me. And that, uh, those words were said over 15 years now. And that seed that words is still ripening in me. It's, it's a kind of love that and trust that, that a teacher had for a student. And I don't know if Tai was being cheeky or not, but those words are still part of my foundation of my well-being today. Thank you for sharing that, brother. And um, what you speak of is how you started off this conversation, which is, it's about taking the pressure off. Because if we allow life to show up and we say, actually, we're going to act in our best way possible and we don't need to know the result, that, there's immense freedom in that. And, and what you say is sometimes a smile, if someone's going through a difficult time and you just smile at them, and it could be a stranger, it could be on a bus and you just smile at that person, that, as you say, can be life-affirming. And we don't need to know the result of everything. But actually, so I'll give, I'll give one example. I think I might have given it another episode, but, it, but it's a beautiful example of this, is that um, where uh, I grew up with my parents, the next door neighbors, um, the couple had a couple of kids, but they were always very, very busy, and the older daughter um, never really got a chance to go out, uh, wasn't get taken out for, um, for any sort of type of adventure or visits. And, and my mum and dad, 
uh, took her out a few times in London. And in particular, took her to a museum called the Victoria and Albert Museum, which is all about sort of the sort of old age stuff in the UK, not, not, not technological, but all the sort of the historical stuff. And, um, and about 20 years later, uh, there was a knock on their door and uh, my mum and dad opened and it was this girl who had now grown up and was living her life and she said, I just wanted to thank you um, because your trip, the trips to the Victoria and Albert Museum, they inspired me so much and as a result of that I've I got a love for antiques and I've become an antiques dealer and actually my career is now buying and selling antiques and it's like you know, when, when I stand back from that, there was no wish or need, I'm going to take this girl to the Victoria and Albert Museum because she might like <laughs> um, antiques and then she might have built a career in that. It was just from the love. And I think that if we take away the need for the outcome and just be present for people, then, then life can show up fully. And it's when, you know, it's about the trust versus control again. But brother, I want to ask you something specifically um, around the practice, because as you started off by saying that uh, the people here in the audience today, and, um, and you get many, many thousands of people coming to Plum Village uh, a year, and tasting this sort of, uh, this place of peace, place of feeling at home, place where you can let your armor down and you can truly practice and step, as you say, into freedom. Uh, and then people go out, uh, back into the weird real world. Um, and often, as you said, they berate themselves or they feel they failed because they want to take this spirit of Plum Village into their life. And then they go back into their busy lives and it might be having a really busy work schedule or it could be having kids to look after and all the busyness of their lives. And, and if, even a week later, a day later, they may think either this didn't work or I failed. So I'd love you to share a bit about the life journey of practice. Because you've also, um, you know, because that's also, of course, true of the monastics in every shape and form that, you know, they will come, you know, and there's a, there's a real... Uh, issue here with some of the, uh, the new monks and nuns who come in and they want to be perfect. They, they have this idea of what a perfect monk and nun is and then when they feel they're not achieving what they want, they may question their time here or say, well, actually, is the, is the practice actually working? And, and then if we decide it's not working, we may then actually turn our back on it completely for the rest of our life. We may say, well, that didn't work, so back into the distraction, back into... Um, the other ways of living this life from a sort of very consumerist sort of consumption-based model. So, um, simple question, brother. Um, how do, how can we all see this practice of ripening? Because I know even Thai, you know, he used to say in Dharma talks, if people were sleeping, it, it didn't really bother him because it would be Dharma rain. It would just, you'd take in what, you need to take in and that it might be 20 years later that you suddenly click that insight comes together but give us a sort of flavor of how can we practice 
with joy, equanimity, patience, even when it looks like nothing is going right? I said it was a simple question. <laughs> Good question, Joe. I think the image that can be very helpful is of a gardener. And the, the gardener does have to be disciplined in making sure to water the seeds, to care for um, the nutrients that the seed needs for it to sprout and for the flower, the tree, whatever plant that we are planting, for it to get the right nutrients. So the ripening happens when there's action. So all of our, all of our practice here, there is an engagement from the individual. There has to be an engagement. There has to be an intention. And there has to be a kind of daily, daily discipline we, we talk about in, in our tradition. When we hear the word discipline, we may think of like a very um, regime schedule of, of meditation. It can help, but we also have the middle way. And we, we, we cannot be too intense, too rigid, then the string will snap. And the Buddha uses this uh, metaphor when he spoke to a musician, and it's in the book Old Path White Clouds. And he met a, mus a very talented musician, and the Buddha said the Dhamma is like fine-tuning an instrument for our path of practice. If we are too intense, too rigid, too extreme, we won't go the long distance. At one point, the string will snap because there's too much effort. There's too much intensity. But then if we're too loose, if we're too lazy, and we just are just daydreaming about what can be, and when the string is loose, it doesn't play the sound it needs to play. So as a musician, we have to understand our instrument in daily life. What is our, what, what are the fine tuning that we can create in our daily life to have that balance? And this is why for me, these Dharma here are very practical. We walk everywhere. You can apply walking meditation. We eat every day. Can we allow ourselves to give 10 minutes, maybe not the full 20 minutes or the 30, 45 minutes you get in Plum Village, but can we allow ourselves 10 minutes to just eat the food without distraction, without conversations, and just to be in touch with that? We drink coffee or tea or beverage, non-alcoholic for for all of us monastics. And can we make that a spiritual moment? So the question here in, um, the question in the answer is the reflection of each individual. 
is how do we find nuggets or little moments in our daily life that we can make it our spiritual moment. And nobody can take that away. I've, I've been at train station, at airports, with, with our teacher, hundreds of thousands of people. Nobody can take his peace away. Nobody can remove his practice of presence. And it becomes um, a transmission. When I was Thai's attendant, I never felt like I needed to practice. Because being around Thai, it's like if you don't practice, it's like you don't belong in that vibe. <laughs> it's, like, it's like you're, like, you're, you're, fighting, you're fighting him in a way. So our own presence, our own way of being is a transmission. So our, our ripening, if what we've touched here, even if it is uh, 20% or 30% or some of us maybe 80% of, of, or 100% even of like full presence, this is a faith or this is a, a fruit that we're able to taste. And that fruit can continue to ripen as long as we continue to care for it, like a gardener, nurturing that seed. Um, and then when the fruit come, you can enjoy the fruit. And it comes very unexpectedly. Like there was a, there was a moment when I was a very young Dhamma teacher and uh, going to give talks to to not practitioners. Talking to practitioners is really easy because everybody, we're all in the same vibe in a way. We're, and I went to a business conference, all suit up, tight, very judgmental eye, like what the heck are monks doing here? <laughs> but the CEO bought two monks so we got to listen to him, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and oh, oh boy, it was, it was like, like it was like purple lighting in the, in the hall, a live band playing. <laughs> and, and then they put two monks like right in the center. And I felt, I felt so out of place. And I felt, uh, I was really scared. I felt really alone, even though I had a brother right next to me. And the two of us are gonna share and guide for 30 minutes. And in that moment, you know, I, I, I saw one businesswoman who also, in, like, she reflected me, like, she doesn't want to be here. And I'm like, I'm going to share to her. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show her how to be happy in this moment through the meditation. And in that moment, through all of the years of sitting still and investing First, I was able to recognize my worry. I was able to name all of my emotions that were coming up. Fear, judge, anxiety, hopelessness, the unknown. And I was just like, ah, oh, it's okay. Breathe with me. And, I, and I, I really put my hand on my abdomen. 
And I just, I guided all of these emotions through my breathing. I was practicing, I have arrived, I'm home. And I felt really centered in that moment. And then I tapped into non-self. I said, when I speak, it's not about Fapu. I'm just going to speak the Dharma. I'm going to speak the words to help people come back to their body, to relax their body, to care for themselves in just 30 minutes that they have in an intense eight-hour day of meeting. If I can offer them this, it's already a gift. So I was able to remove the self and then to entrust myself to the stream of wisdom that has been passed down to me. And when I delivered the sharing, I just trust, trust the seeds that you are planting. And I'll never forget, I had a moment with Tai. We were in San Francisco. And Tai was going to hold a day of practice just for 30 CEOs. And this was 2013. So it was like the peak of Tai's tours and teaching. And every event was 1,000 and above. And I said, Tai, this is not worth it. You should rest. 30 people only. And Tai just looked at me and he said, never underestimate the seeds of mindfulness. So in that moment, I also, I had to entrust myself to the wisdom that has been transmitted to myself. And later on, we, so it was a five-day conference, and every day, 30 minutes of time with monks or, or other years with nuns. And all the businessmen and women and business people, they always shared they valued that 30 minute of silence that they got. For some, it was very challenging, but it was 30 minutes of rest. So the ripple, the, the seed we planted, it, it, it went quite far. And some of these uh, business uh, friends still come to our community of practice to today. And we are still invited to their organizations to share the practice with them. Thank you, brother. And one, one thing to just to reiterate of what you said is choose one thing. Because again, this idea of things are not separate. If you focus on one aspect of the practice, it will flow into all the other aspects. And so one of the mistakes people come here is to, to come away with whole lists of things they want to change. And if you try and be a gardener for too much, then actually everything's going to suffer because it's you can't tend to anything but if you tend to one thing beautifully then that opens the door to other things brother i just want a couple of things on my mind one is about movement building so uh i worked in the field of sort of climate and sustainability for 30 years and um 
And one thing people do, people often feel overwhelmed and burn out, burnt out because they feel they're doing one, they feel that what they're doing, the world rests on their shoulders. And one of the things I've noticed about how ripening supports is that often when people are doing things ahead of the curve or before they become mainstream, so they're working at the edge of society, trying to create change, it's a very lonely place. So it's a bit like um, in, in, uh, at the edge of ecosystems. A lot, a lot of, so there's a thing called edge economics, and what it does is it's recognised that the way things start out, and the way new life forms start out, they can't st start out in the centre of an ecosystem because it's already so well developed that actually it doesn't allow for new life forms to start. So life forms tend to start at the very edge, so it might be at the edge of an estuary, where there's no, nothing else competing, so they get space, and if they become strong enough, then they start to come into the centre of an ecosystem, become established. But, um, but when you're at the edge of the ecosystem, uh, trying to start a new life, it's really difficult. And I think that's a very good sort of metaphor for let's say, activists in the world who are sort of trying to generate change, feeling that they're not being listened to, feeling that actually most of the world is just getting on with the current system and seem to be quite happy. And, and it can be quite tortuous to, um, to know a truth, to want to act on it, to put your heart and soul into it, but then for it, in that moment not to get traction and to be rejected it's a, it's a place of great loneliness um, and when people always talk to me about sustainability and about the climate movement I, I would always say well very similar to you brother that it's like we're tilling the land we're getting the land ready so that when change needs to happen it can happen really quickly but if you hadn't put in all the preparation, if, if, if people hadn't worked within business, if there hadn't been people like Greenpeace, if there hadn't been uh, brave politicians, if there hadn't been people working at the front line of environmental protection, you know, for over the last 30 years, then there'd be nothing ready to then grow when, when people may possibly wake up to the dangers that the world is in that, that we've already got so many of the solutions. But when people see themselves as individuals, it, it doesn't feel like a ripening at all. It can feel like, um, it can feel desperate. So I'm, I'm just wondering, you started off, you know, also by talking about the third Dharma Seal, about interbeing, in the sense of how people who are working at the edge, who often feel no one's listening to them, but who see a deep truth in what they're doing. How, how can they support themselves in ripening, in recognizing actually that, again, they may not see the results of what they're doing for 10, 20, 30, 40 years, maybe not even in their lifetime, but how, how to stay committed even when you know that you may not see that. That can be very disheartening in the not knowing. I'm, I'm going to take refuge in the second Dhammasu for this one, which is the insight of uh, going as a river. In your question, I think a lot about Thai, about uh, our teacher, and uh, the power of uh, 
aspiration and the power of hope and the power of a dream. Like Martin Luther King Jr., which is our teacher's good friend, his famous speech about a dream, to, to dare to, to see the world that is not existing already. And our aspirations are also seeds for them to be ripened. And in the, um, in the creation of Plum Village, it comes from uh, a simple hope that there is a place for people to come together to nurture our humanity. And that's when Thai started Fragrant Palm Leaves, um, the SYSS, the School for Youth and Social Service, the Vang Han University, to nurture many more seeds. And even when he had to uh, leave the country and was exiled and couldn't return back to these gardens that he's already invested so much in, the fire of aspiration never died down. And when we speak about uh, meditation and we speak about a path of practice, it's, it's not for ourselves. The deep Buddhism is we're always bringing the world into our actions. And Thay said, okay, I can't go back to Vietnam. This is my new home. This is my new field. I will create a new tradition. <laughs> I will create a new community. And the aspiration of, um, of setting up a place so that we all can just cultivate our mindfulness of body, speech, and mind, and having an opportunity to transform. It also needed to take time to change learning from it, growing from it. So not to also be attached from the initial view of what we want. Because later on, Thai created a community that wasn't born in a war. We, we don't have bombs um, falling. We are not always in survival mode. So our community also adapted and changed, and Thai's Dharma also adapted and changed. And our way of being also have to, to, to be appropriate for the West, right? Now we're in France and in America and Germany and many of the other centers. And to trust that the, trust that the, um, that the words and the hope and aspiration we speak of is never lost. It can be lonely, but that's also a view. <laughs> and, and I think this is why our teacher, um, Tai, emphasized so much on community building because he, he talks about his success as the community's success. If you're to ask me what is Tai's greatest masterpiece, I would say it's the Sangha. It is uh, the establishment of uh, a community coming together to practice. 
And we have to continue to nurture that. We have to continue to grow within this garden that he has set up for us. And on an individual basis for all of us who don't live in Plum Village, he always says, go home and create your communities of practice, your friends, your spiritual friends that you can rely on, that you can maintain your spiritual dimension so you can continue to ripen. And one thing that Sister True Dedication shared in one of the climate activist retreat leaders, activist retreat we had in Plum Village, she said that when we come together and we learn to care for each other and care for the environment, we're creating a new culture, a culture that will be transmitted from generations to generation. And it's not just because we're an activist now, and we need in 10 years for things to change. We do need for things in 2030 to change according to the science. But if our view is just to fight for that change in 2030, then we're limiting ourselves. But if all of us collectively, we are having a new way of being, a new way of seeing, a new way of consuming, a new way of being together, this is a new culture, a way of love, a way of caring for the environment, and a way for communities, caring our own gardens also. Because Tai has said, the cosmos is not outside of us, it's inside of us. We are the cosmos, we are the environment. The war is not outside of us, the war is also inside of us, the discrimination, the hatred, the um, the wanting to punish. If we don't transform our minds, our way of being, it won't it won't be everlasting. So this would be my encouragement for all of us who are change makers, our leaders, and from time to time we do feel alone. We feel we are the only one pulling this wagon, and it can. Um, lead to burnout. And this is where the second river, whether it is metaphorically to see that you're not alone, because when we do look at the, the scope of all the activists and all of the um, people who want to bring a change, there's more than just us. The peacemakers in many culture, tradition, religion, etc. And on a practical level, to develop communities, teams where, where we can garden together. Thank you, brother. Now I have one final question. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. The, um, which is one of the sort of the innovations Ty brought in was he talked about ripening in different places. And um, so uh, Sister Lang Yim, one of the senior nuns, gave the example of... Um, you know, if I'm consuming something in... Well, she gave the example of the Pacific Island states, which are in danger of being engulfed by water and, you know, creating the first climate refugees in the world, that these whole cultures are being will be eradicated in the next 10 to 20 years. That That is a result of actions taken elsewhere. And so Tai was very clear, and I, I, I think it's that 
deep sense of interbeing that if I'm taking action in one place, it doesn't ripen just in that place. It can ripen in a very, very different place. And I just wondered, uh, I, I just thought that was, it fitted very much into Ty's idea of, you know, you can't isolate yourself from the world, that, that how we take ourselves, how we act in the world is impacting, is creating ripening in somewhere very far away. And I just wondered if there was anything you just wanted to say about that understanding in terms of interbeing and how we can recognize that. I think that insight just uh, is a meditation for all of us on how we consume our daily life because our consumption um, has an impact not just where we are but in different countries, in different people's livelihood, but also looking at our way of being with one another. That's also a way of consuming. How do we care for each other? How do we support each other? The words we choose to use, it can have a deep impact into the future. So all of these insight of the four Dhamma Siu, the power of it, it's, it gives us uh, responsibility and our own agency. And accountability as well. And accountability. When we speak about freedom, freedom comes with accountability and responsibility. Thank you, brother. So, should we... Um, no, no, we won't. <laughs> <laughs> no time. Um, so, brother, um, we traditionally finish off with a short guided meditation. So, I'm wondering, given we have the bellmaster in the hall, whether we could maybe um, invite us under the bell and whether, brother, you could just um, bring us back to this present moment with our feet firmly planted on the ground and just um, in traditional Plum Village session, everything we've spoken about, we can just let drift away. What needs to stay in will stay in. What doesn't will just go into the river and down into the ocean. Dear friends, whether you are sitting on a bus, sitting on an airplane, sitting on a sofa, or sitting in this meditation hall, whether you are going for a jog, going for a walk, or enjoy doing chores in your home, if you just allow yourself to take a pause, you may like to sit down, or just to stand still, or even laying flat on the ground and start to become aware of your whole body sinking into the earth. Relaxing our shoulders, our arms, our upper body, our lower body. And bring our attention to the feeling of our in-breath and to the feeling of our out-breath. 
Just recognize this is my in-breath. This is my out-breath. If the breath is short, let it be short. If the breath is long, let it be long. Breathing in, I smile to my in-breath. Breathing out, I smile to my out-breath. In-breath, Breathing in, I arrive with my in-breath to my body. Breathing out, I allow this moment to be my home. In-breath, arriving, out-breath, at home. Breathing in, I see myself as a drop of water. Breathing out, becoming a part of this river, flowing together to the ocean. In, drop of water, out flowing together in unison, no separation, flowing seamlessly towards the ocean. Breathing in, I embrace the past. Breathing out, I care for the future with each breath grounded in the present moment. In, embracing. three times into R. Breathing in, I nourish my seeds of mindfulness, awareness, love and care. Breathing out, I trust the ripening of my seeds so it will nurture me and future generations. 
in nourishing our seeds out. Trust in the ripening. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, friends, for joining us in this episode. And we'll see you next time. Yes. Bye. Yeah.